Question for you. Who was the better ball player, Ty Cobb or Babe Ruth? It can't be that hard. After all, baseball's all about statistics, right? It's all here on paper. In his 24-year career, Cobb hit a record 367. In his 22 years, Ruth hit 346. Cobb is among the top five all-time in at-bats, hits, doubles, triples, and stolen bases. Ruth's records for career homers, slugging average, runs, RBIs, and bases on balls held up for a half century. Cobb is widely regarded as the fiercest, instinctively best base runner the game has known. Ruth put up remarkable numbers on the mound, including wins in all three World Series games he pitched. Hmm, apples and, well, a Georgia peach. Let's see what their contemporaries thought. If you need to find a picture of George Herman Babe Ruth of Baltimore, open any good dictionary under L for larger than life. Of his hitting, Dizzy Dean said, no one hits home runs the way Babe did. They were something special. They were like homing pigeons. The ball would leave the bat, pause briefly, suddenly gain its bearings, then take off for the stands. Of his exploits, sports writer Tommy Holmes wrote, some 20 years ago I stopped talking about the Babe for the simple reason that I realized that those who had never seen him didn't believe me. Of Tyrus Raymond Cobb of Narrows, Georgia, Casey Stengel remarked, I never saw anyone like him, no one even close to him. He was the greatest all-time ball player. Babe Ruth, like so many others, described Cobb with a bitter, phallic epithet, adding, but he sure can hit. God Almighty, that man can hit. Hall of Famer Tris Speaker seemed to settle the argument when he said, the Babe was a great ball player, but Cobb was even greater. Babe could knock your brains out, but Cobb would drive you crazy. Moreover, when Cobb and Ruth were named among the first Hall of Fame inductees, it was Cobb who finished well ahead of Ruth in the balloting. When Babe Ruth died, hundreds of thousands mourned along the funeral route in Yankee Stadium and in St. Patrick's Cathedral. When Cobb died, three former players were among the handful who attended his funeral. Ruth was seen as a lovable, kind teddy bear of a man. Cobb was remembered as an angry, volatile racist. Why is Babe Ruth an icon while Ty Cobb is an asterisk. It boils down to one crucial point, emotion. Cobb is a logical choice. Ruth is the emotional favorite. Where Cobb owns the brain, Ruth owns the heart. Emotion is why, today, nobody wants to be remembered as the Ty Cobb of anything. And in any popularity contest, and especially in marketing, it's emotion that determines the winner. My name is Terry O'Reilly, and I'm about to defy all logic and show you how emotion is at the heart, so to speak, of billions of dollars of daily spending decisions in the age of persuasion. I want chicken. I want liver. I want a
bottle of Coca-Cola, Donnie. Dance, yes. Gracie, meet the boy. Hey, great. A toothpaste should fight tapping. I can't believe I ate that whole... Big separate home freezer. It holds 190 pounds of food. And now, Terry O'Reilly and the Age of Persuasion. There you go again. It's not easy. It's not easy. Um, Monday, January 7th, 2008. Hillary Clinton has been called a lot of things, but never touchy-feely until today. You know, I have so many opportunities from this country. I just don't want to see us fall backwards. You know, so... You know, this, this is very personal for me. A rare show of emotion on the campaign trail from Senator Hillary Clinton. It happened earlier today. So rare was Ms. Clinton's show of emotion at a time when she most needed to inject some humanity into her campaign that many still aren't sure if her outburst was genuine or calculated. Athena, can you give us a better sense of what happened there? For the first time, a woman who many of her closest supporters have said really needed to show her personal side uh, appears to be opening up with new signs of, of emotion. It was quite remarkable, Peter. What happened, it was at the... Why might Senator Clinton need emotion? Contrary to popular wisdom, political campaigns are rarely fought and won on issues. And even if they were, candidates might not be far enough apart to make the voters' choice clear. In 1992, when Senator Clinton's hubby ran against George Bush Sr., their second live TV debate included questions from a studio audience. That's when a woman asked the candidates this. Yes, how has the national debt personally affected each of your lives? And if it hasn't, how can you honestly find a cure for the economic problems of the common people if you have no experience in what's ailing them? President Bush, a former Yale infielder, booted the ball badly. Well, I think the national debt affects everybody. Uh, obviously, it has, has a lot to do with interest rates. It has... She's saying you personally. On a personal basis, how has it affected you? Has it affected you personally? Well, I'm sure it has. I love my grand grandchildren. I want to think how? that... I want to think... His voice up a half octave, the president became combative. But I don't, think it, I don't think it's fair to say, you haven't had cancer, therefore you don't know what it's like. When it was Clinton's turn, he got down off his stool and walked towards the woman. Tell me how it's affected you again. Um, you know people who've lost their well, jobs, yeah. lost their homes? Uh -huh. Well, I've been governor of a small state for 12 years. I'll tell you how it's affected me. For every point the woman had raised, he responded with an aspect of his economic plan, not in big global terms, but in the language of that lady and of the millions of Americans who faced the same issues and were watching. In my state, when people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. It is said that, in that moment, Clinton won the American presidency. It was because he made it personal. He brought emotion to the moment. He didn't talk at her, he talked with her. He had a real conversation with her. In doing so, he raised the hopes and expectations of a new future 
and voters decided it could only happen with him. It is because we are in the grip of a failed economic theory. A giant of my business, David Ogilvy, once observed, the greater the similarity between products, the less reason plays in brand selection. In the age of persuasion, that's where choices become emotional. But not the melancholy emotions of Senator Clinton. The emotions I'm talking about can be infinitely more subtle. Look at the traffic jam. Aren't you grateful to be part of it all? To be gazing at this vibrant expanse of cars, taxis, trucks, a dirty finger sprouting out of windows like flowers in spring. To be listening to all the honk, 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 and the beep, 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 the enthusiastic exchange of up yours, and get moving, you slow The vexing thing about great ad creative is that it sounds so obvious and easy. Of course, the Lotus Spa is about serenity and emotional benefit. That spot, from the Philippines, was honored with a gold lion at Cannes in 2007. And unlike many lesser advertisers, this spa resisted the urge to talk about itself. It didn't rattle off niceties about staff, and facilities and location and hours. It identified an emotional benefit important to its customers and owned it. To a spa goer, peace and freedom from stress are infinitely more important than friendly qualified staff and a convenient location. Put simply, finding the emotional trigger is a three-tiered process. First, a marketer has to understand why the consumer might want to buy a given brand. Second, the marketer needs to understand the benefit the brand delivers. Here's where so many in my trade drop the ball. Upon review, marketers forgot that crucial third step. Discovering why that benefit is important. It's there that a brand covers itself in emotional stickum and wins a lasting place in the consumer's mind by way of the heart. Attention shoppers, please take your items to the cashier. Okay, you're probably wondering why I've brought you here to this hardware store. In the interest of impartiality, I won't say which one. Hi, welcome to You Do It Hardware. Okay, we're gonna have to work on that whole impartiality thing. Hardware is a tough, hard-fought retail category. No one store has an obvious two-touchdown advantage over the other guys. Where there's tough competition, a marketing battle can rarely be won on facts and tangibles because there's little one brand can do that others can't match. That's why, some years back, Home Depot stopped using the slogan, low prices are just the beginning. With new powerful big box competition, 
low prices weren't a unique advantage. Other slogans followed, you'll feel right at home and first in home improvement, but neither, forgive me, nailed down a strong emotional benefit. Wait, I've uh, <clears throat> got to put a dollar in the age of persuasion pun jar. So Home Depot changed tack. The Home Depot is more than a store. It's finally starting that new deck. It's changing colors and opening minds. I'm fond of saying that hardware stores don't sell three-quarter inch drill bits. They sell three-quarter inch holes. So Home Depot identified an important emotional benefit to their store. They're about self-achievement. The Home Depot. You can do it. We can help. Emotional, yes. But alas, not unique. On their heels are Canada's Rona, the how-to people, and home hardware, where help is close to home. Ooh, look, an air nailer. Okay, uh, clean up on aisle six. What ad legend Rosser Reeves described as the unique selling proposition has to be emotional, but it also has to be unique. It's a revelation some major brands discovered before Rosser Reeves got his first gig, and which some stumbled on entirely by accident. My name is Terry O'Reilly. And this is the Age of Persuasion. In 1922, a health clinician with the Washburn Crosby Company of Minneapolis was preparing gruel, a pasty wheat cereal, when suddenly he spilt a bit on a hot stove. He noticed the gruel promptly cooked into small, yummy wheat flakes. He shared his discovery with Washburn's head miller, George Cormack, who experimented with 26 variations of the formula until finally creating a flake that would hold together through the packaging process. The company knew it was onto something, so in November 1924, it proudly launched an exciting new ready-to-eat breakfast cereal, yes, Washburn's gold medal, Whole Wheat Flakes. A name changed, mercifully, to Wheaties, following an internal naming contest. Have you tried Wheaties? In 1926, Wheaties may well have launched the first ever radio jingle. And sure enough, wherever and whenever the jingles were played, sales would climb. Here, the Washburn Crosby folks added one of marketing's most prized ingredients, serendipity. By the early 30s, the company struck a sponsorship deal with the Minneapolis Millers Baseball Club. Wheaties would sponsor broadcasts of the Millers games on its own radio station, WCCO, the call letters being taken from Washburn Crosby Company. Wheaties would also use a billboard over the left field fence to unveil its new ad slogan. That is, as soon as they had one. Enter Minneapolis ad guy Knox Reeves. According to legend, Reeves was asked to create a Wheaties slogan. 
So he pulled out a pad and pencil, sketched a Wheaties box, and stared at it a moment. Quicker than Malcolm Gladwell can blink, he said, Breakfast of Champions, and plunked the pencil down. And that was that. Wheaties wasn't about breakfast. It was about the emotion of victory. Wheaties' ad flagship was the popular radio series about the adventures of a dynamic high school kid. What was his name? Jack Armstrong! Jack Armstrong! Jack Armstrong! Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy! Wave the Piper Hudson High, boys! Show them how we stand! The series ran from 1933 to 1951. Wheaties, breakfast of champions, bring you the thrilling adventures of Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy. Wave the Piper Hudson High, boys! Stanky is stepping in. Wait a minute. Stanky is being called back from the plate and Lava Jello goes up to hit. In 1939, Wheaties backed the first sponsored telecast of a baseball all-star game called by the legendary Red Barber. A hit, one imagines, with many of New York's 500 television owners. And another dollar for the pun jar. Even before marketers understood the persuasive power of emotion, Wheaties connected emotionally with millions as the Breakfast of Champions cereal. But they couldn't do it without authenticity. Wheaties really did provide the base nutritional ingredients it boasted about. Yet their breakfast cereal victory wasn't without a detour or two. In the late 40s, Wheaties, alarmed by the growing expense of sponsoring sports broadcasts, abandoned its Breakfast of Champions brand and marketed to kids just like so many other cereals. Yet, without sports, Wheaties sounded decidedly out of shape. Maybe you're sort of tired of eating the same old thing day after day. Maybe you'd like to try something different, something delicious, something with a marvelous flavor that just knocks the spots off any other cereal you've ever tried. Now, if that's the case, why don't you ask your mother to let you have a big bowl of crackly, crunchy, golden brown Wheaties flakes tomorrow morning? Wheaties' ads, at their best, sounded like a perspiration-soaked defense lawyer putting a dubious case to a cynical jury. And your mother probably knows, too, that authorities now recognize that Wheaties supply the very same amount of heat-producing units you need to help keep your body warm these cold winter days as a cooked cereal does. Even with authorities on his side, you can hear this guy perspiring. In marketing terms, Wheaties had abandoned the heart in favor of the head. But without sports, sales dropped 10%. Wheaties learned the hard way what ad guy Mark Fenske would put so beautifully decades later. You can't logic your way into an audience's heart. And another thing, remind your mother that lots of grocers are featuring Wheaties and bananas now. Ask her to get some of each next time she goes to the store. Try that delicious breakfast combination tomorrow morning. You'll say it's swell. Prime Wheaties, their whole wheat with all of the brand. Its tail tucked between its legs, Wheaties sprinted back to the emotional position it once dominated and has remained the breakfast of champions ever since. Bye, Wheaties, the best breakfast food in the land. In his marvelous book, Punching In, The Unauthorized Adventures of a Frontline Employee, 
Alex Frankel observes that nobody needs anything anymore. It's not like 1775 when people needed staple grains to survive. So, if marketers can't appeal to needs, then they must appeal to desires. And that's tricky. Because an emotional connection is one that has to be authentically felt, but it should never be stated. See what you make of this award-winning spot that does both. Hello? What are you wearing? Uh, my fat jeans and a t-shirt. Ah, oh, that is so hot. Actually, I'm kind of chilly. Well, maybe I should race home and warm you up. Did you just go to Certix? How'd you know? You always get like this when you go to Certix. I was a naughty boy. I bought a lot of wine. You gonna spank me? No. <gasps> Certix is having their spring wine sale. You better have stocked up. Oh, I went crazy. I saved 20, 25, even 35% on wine, beer, even the hard stuff. You want to show me how much you appreciate that? Yeah. Um, I'll have the casserole ready when you get home. That is so hot. She wants me. Everyone knows Certix has great wine, a great selection, and an unrivaled staff. But what makes us really special is our passion. It's contagious. And during our wine sale, it can reach a fever pitch. So be warned, if you stop into Certix, our enthusiasm may leave with you. Certix Annual Spring Wine Sale, February 28th through March 18th. That spot makes a dangerous leap from the right brain to the left where the announcer comes in. There, the spot stops demonstrating its emotional benefit, its passion for wine, and starts describing that benefit in almost clinical terms. I say again, in marketing, emotion should be felt and not stated. It's not really that funny. It's funny. No, it's childish and immature. In the 80s, when the two dominant cola brands abandoned emotion and fought a war on taste, a war erupted that left both with permanent scars. Coke launched a new formula and, like Wheaties, learned the danger of arguing their way into people's hearts. Its retreat to classic Coke caused a surge in sales, leaving them better off than where they started. Both brands quietly, wisely retreated to the battleground of the heart. Pepsi now appeals to the emotion of youth with all its promise and energy and excitement. Every sip gets you closer to Justin Timberlake MP3s. Hey. Coke, meanwhile, concedes youth to Pepsi, but claims for itself the emotion of nice. Its 2008 Super Bowl ad shows a character from the game Grand Theft Auto, Coke in hand, on a rampage of nice on otherwise hostile city streets. You give a little love and it all comes back to you. The battles of taste are done for now. The war of emotions is in full swing. Advertising whose content evokes emotion is rare and nearly impossible to create. And even then, the emotion owned by the brand is entirely separate from the emotion that draws viewers in. In this TV spot, a little boy returns from school with a card, a Hallmark card, from his teacher. Max, what's this? An Amy Lunar Module. Max. Something from Mrs. Bennett. What'd she give you a card for? Because I was nice to somebody. Who were you nice to? Scott. Who's Scott? 
Why are you going to school just once in a while? Because he's sick. Was he at the school play? No. Can we get an armadillo? How were you nice to him? Well, Mrs. Bennett always has me sit next to him. Scott can't go out for recess and stuff, so I stay in and play Ossie with him. I didn't know you were doing that. I like him. It's no big deal. I think it might be a big deal. Can I see your card? Sure. Didn't have to do what you did. That's what made it so special. Max, do you know what this means? Kinda. It means you should be very proud of yourself. I know I am. There's the big hug from Mom and... Mom? Yeah. He's pushing me. Excuse me. Allergies. The emotions churned in a Hallmark ad are very different from the emotional benefit that drives the brand. Hallmark is about expression. It finds you a way of expressing yourself in those important emotional moments in your life. I've often said that if you want to market a brand entirely on its merits, you better have a cure for cancer or baldness. Stake your brand on anything less, price, location, the quality of your product. The competition can and will match you, surpass you, beat you up, and take your lunch money. Which is why most great branding is about emotion. As the great Bill Burnback put it, the key is to say something about your product so people feel it in their gut. Only emotion can give you that. Most brands struggle to maintain share of mind. But to me, that is just awareness. What the truly smart brands want is share of heart. Because if the facts aren't as compelling as they once were, the emotion of the brand will keep customers there. Share of heart is about loyalty beyond all reason. The emotional key, to me, is in the writing. Bad writing takes a boat across the ocean. Good writing takes a plane. So if you ever find yourself reaching for a product that is slightly more expensive than the other product right beside it on the shelf and wonder why you have just demonstrated how powerful a share of heart is in the Age of Persuasion. The Age of Persuasion is created and written by those two oh, emotional saps, Terry O'Reilly and Mike Tennant. Allergies. Engineer Keith the Iceman Omen. Title theme by Ari Posner and Ian Lefevre. They make you laugh, they make you cry, they become a part of you. Just don't loan them money. The Age of Persuasion is produced for CBC Radio by Pirate Toronto. Uh -huh.